Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 60. There's almost nothing besides my family that gives me any more pleasure than feeding grass to cows. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's episode, we have Kevin Cunningham, who with his wife Melanie and son Clyde runs Shake Fork Community Farm. On there, they do grass-fed beef, have a couple dairy cows for personal use, layers, and turkeys. We dive into it. We mainly talk about his cattle and managing them. And then we get into oxen. Yes, he uses oxen on his farm. Very interesting. And I think you'll enjoy it even if you don't plan on having a pair of oxen in the future. However, before we talk to Kevin, 10 seconds about my farm. The weather's been decent. We got a little bit of rain, but never enough. But I think a lot of people echo that same thing. We did get our hay wrapped up. A little late to getting it wrapped up, but we have a custom baler come in. And that always runs later than we would like. Our hay only produced about 65% of what it's been producing. So we will be fine going into winter. We are actively working to feed less hay than we have in the past, but we still like to have that insurance policy in the barn. Enough about my farm. Let's talk about reviews. If you've left a review for us, we appreciate it. If you haven't, we encourage you to. Now, I did receive an email the other day from Spotify that we had a question from J-E-N-I-N-A-Z. And they said, the episode was great. However, you always say we can find the links in the show notes for your guests. But there are no links to Christina Traeger's site or social media in the notes. When I say our show notes, I'm thinking of our show notes at grazinggrass.com. And you can get to any of those by going to grazinggrass.com slash episodes slash the episode number. So for Christina's episode, that'd be slash 58. I thought in our notes that we pushed forth, it was a little bit clearer. Um, I pulled it up on Spotify and it was not. So we will be fixing that. Uh, we will have the links, social links and websites for each of our guests, not only at the grazinggrass.com show notes, but we will also push it out in a different place on our episode show notes. So it should show up for whatever app you're using. I appreciate the feedback and we'll get that where it works better for you. Enough about this. Let's talk to Kevin. Kevin, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Certainly. Yeah. So my name is Kevin Cunningham, and me and my wife, Melanie, my young son, Clyde, who is nine, we run Shake Fork Community Farm here in Humboldt County, California. We are basically as almost as far north in California as you can go, honestly, probably closer to Oregon than most of California, but we're on up here in Humboldt County on the north coast. We're on the Van Dusen River part of the Eel River watershed. And um, yeah, we run Shake Fork Community Farm. The farm is 85 acres and we've got about 
40 in river and riparian area right on the on the van Dusen, and then about 45 open acres and uh, like about five acres of that or so in mixed vegetable production that we do for our csa as well as local farmers markets and then the remainder of our farm 40 some odd acres we do in kind of a um intensively managed grass-based production so we have grass-fed beef i have a small herd of beef cattle we have a couple of dairy cows and then we also run pastured poultry where we have egg layers two egg laying flocks we also run probably about 1500 or so meat birds per season in uh, chicken tractors and then we also will run a, a seasonal round of thanksgiving turkeys all out on on grass during the season I think probably one of the most unique aspects of, of our particular operation is the fact that we, while we're mixed powered, we use a lot of draft animal power. So in addition to the cattle herd, I also have my, my teams of oxen and I actually have currently five oxen. They're not in the barn right now. They're out grazing in the field. Um, and, uh, so I have a team of about five year olds. They're kind of my main daily use team. And then Thor Odin is that team. And then I have one of my original oxen. I still, he's still kind of semi-retired, but Joseph, Joseph, the ox, he's probably about 13 or so at this point. And then I have a young pair of about year and a half, almost two year old oxen that are kind of young and training coming up. That's kind of the, the overlay of, of our farm. I've been farming here in Humboldt County for 22 years working on other farms. I was kind of trained as a uh, straight ahead tractor-based organic vegetable production on farms up here in Humboldt County. I kind of cut my teeth on growing organic produce, mostly potatoes, winter squash, storage crops. And so we've been here on this particular property for 14 years. So you have a lot of things going on there. We have a lot of balls in the air. Yeah. Melanie, my wife, she manages more of the vegetable side of, of the operation. And then I manage more of the, you know, pasture based side of the operation. And that kind of helps balance our, our workload. You know, I still use the oxen in the garden. So I'm doing, I'm involved in the garden. And then she is very in, involved in management of like the um, poultry processing. So, you know, when we, when we slaughter our chickens and all those things. So we, we do overlap, but in general, we've got kind of our separate domains. It's necessary because there's so many different things happening on this very kind of small piece of property that we have here. And are you both full-time on the farm? We've been full-time on the farm for almost the entirety of our time here. I started the farm on leased ground prior to us moving to this particular place here in Carlotta. And at that time, Melanie was finishing up school. And so then now it became almost necessary to have both of us here full-time because we have so many things going on. And I think you said you've been there 14 years. This will be our 14th growing season here. We're obviously doing something right because we're still, we're still here. Yeah, that is a very long time and doing all this. So let, let's get into some of these things and find out how long you've been doing it and what you're doing there. What did you start with when you all moved there? Or what were you doing on the lease land when you got ready to move there? I was trained as a kind of tractor-based row crop farmer. 
And one of the things that my previous mentor, Paul Gentoli, allowed me to do is I had an interest in growing small grains. And so I actually started the farm and we were growing barley, rye, oats, and wheat kind of on leased ground and running a grain CSA at the very outset of our farm. And so we actually ran a grain CSA for about the first five years of our operation. And even when we first moved to this particular place, that's what we started with. That was kind of the base of, of our farm. And it was, it was great. And I, you know, it was something that I could do, you know, pretty much on my own. I was extensively managing about 15 acres of grain crops. And then when we moved to this property, we quickly realized that it's good soil, like I said, but not all of it is tillable. When we isolated that we only had about five acres of good tillable, you know, ground, we decided to start transitioning and it took a, a couple of years of transition and we noticed, okay, five acres isn't enough ground to do the small grains, especially in a, in a decent rotation. And, but we were able to get in a higher value for the vegetable crops. And so we made that transition early on. And then my experience with livestock actually only happened since being here. And it took us several, several years of deciding how to, you know, and learning how, how to manage, you know, the, the grass here that in a way that was going to be productive for the, the, for the grass as well as profitable for us. And so I kind of put myself through a crash course in grazing and livestock management and everything to get to the point where we're at today. In hindsight, it, I actually am really grateful that we kind of have had to made that, make that pivot because it's allowed me to experience probably my main passion in life, which is feeding grass to cows. There is almost nothing besides my family that gives me any more pleasure than feeding grass to cows. So what I hear is if Melanie can't find you and the work's kind of caught up, you may be sitting out there listening to the cows graze. Probably true. Yeah. During the main season right now, we're very intensively managing it. I'm moving my cows about every 12 hours right now. And so most of the summer I'm out there morning and night. You can usually find me out in the pastures. So let's just talk a little bit about your infrastructure so that you can do that intensive management and moving them every 12 hours. I'm assuming you're using polywire, polybraid, energizer. I kind of set up our farm in a couple of different quadrants with basically alleyways. And I actually, you know, we started almost entirely with net fences because there was a couple of dilapidated barbed wire fences on the property. But one of the features of this particular landscape is that we have a kind of seasonal herd of Roosevelt elk. All of a sudden, overnight, a herd of Roosevelt elk show up onto the farm. And, you know, the neighboring ranches and whatnot are also a part of their kind of generalized territory. And um, the thing about elk, they're beautiful, you know, majestic creatures. They eat a lot of grass and they're really hard on fences. They're lazy jumpers. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have five strands of barbed wire on the ground and it didn't make sense to kind of continue the kind of status quo of the area, which is kind of, you know, standard four or five strand barbed wire, you know, a couple of cross fences. So Melly and I had, we started with dairy goats. Before we moved here, we had, we had raised dairy goats 
And then when we moved here, we kind of realized that the goats weren't going to work within the system. And so we transitioned into sheep. And so we ran a flock of kind of Romney mutt sheep for a while. And so we were using net fences to control the sheep. And that was kind of the main thing that we started with. And then I moved those net fences daily and we were just doing management of these net fences. And then when we started getting into poultry, we are also using the net fences to control the poultry. And we kind of realized that most of these net fences were around a hundred foot wide. And so I started kind of blocking out our pastures into these hundred foot wide alley alleyways. And that's the kind of the system that we continue today, even though we've actually transitioned entirely away from net fences. And my cattle are still only using, I, I use a single line, single hotline to move the, all of the cattle. And I have kind of a semi-permanent metal wire set up on T-posts. I use this really great insulator, lock jaws insulator. They're, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're made in America. They're like these kind of hook C insulators. And what it allows me to do is kind of go on the end of a T-post. I weld on a dynamic angle brace to this T-post. And so it creates, you know, I can create basically like a 1200 foot long single line of metal hot wire. And then I have a hundred feet out. I have another one and then I'm doing poly lines in between. It's kind of a nice system because what I've done is we're flat, fairly flat. You know, we're all on the river bar. So it's basically, you know, not a lot of aspect to our farm. And it allows me to put my T-posts every 50 feet. So I have 100 foot alleyways and then I have my T-posts at 50 feet. And so I can kind of block out on a 100 foot block. And so it varies on the time of the year and the size of the herd. But, you know, our standard kind of grazing block is that 100 by 100 foot block. And what's kind of nice generally about that is that, you know, it's 10,000 square feet, right? So it's 100 by 100. An acre is what, 43,560. So it's about a quarter acre. And I can kind of gauge how many animals I have per space of ground. And then we can expand that during the winter and contract it and, and move that regularly. And during time, there's times when I'll be moving every third day. And then there'll be times where I'm moving like now every 12 hours. And it kind of gives this nice kind of metric blocking thing that I can have to kind of move the animals around the landscape and, uh, in a kind of a, an orderly fashion. And we also have, because one of the factors that we, that we do is we have in a kind of an apprenticeship program on the farm. So we have three to four full-time farm apprentices who come and live and work with us here on the farm. And so they get a varied education in the vegetable production, as well as in the animal production. And so what that allows us to do, if I have a nice, easy, well-defined parameters of how to move, I can have somebody else go and do a cattle move. It's something that, that people can easily understand. And it's been a pretty good system. I mean, we are pretty proud of the fact that it's about as low cost as we could manage and still have fencing for our animals on the farm. I love that way you've set it up with those alleys about a hundred feet apart and the post at set intervals so that you can easily calculate how much your paddock size 
I know on some lease land I have, I've got a fence running down it, and then I've got my pasture pro post set every six, 60 feet, and I know how many acres I'm giving them if I were to run perpendicular to the perimeter fence. The bad part is I'm not always very straight about that. Of course, I'm going an eighth of a mile, so it's a little bit further, and if you're, you're out there and you you lose your direction or something, sometimes those fences look interesting. But I love that you have it down so that you can easily tell how much area you're giving them. And like you said, this area is a little light. We give them a little bit more. It's pretty easy to explain to someone else. Now, one thing that causes myself limitations, I know it causes other people limitations. How do you get water to each paddock? We have a well that's got, you know, it's got about a 12 inch casing and we've got two pumps down in that, in that we've got one that runs irrigation. And then we have one that quote unquote runs our domestic system, which originally was truly going to be our domestic system. It was going to run our house. Right. But the, the reality is, is that what we've tied, we've tied into that domestic system, all of the drip irrigation that we use in our garden, as well as all of the livestock water, as well as our house. And then a communal kind of kitchen processing building that we have here on the farm. And so much more demand. We've had to upgrade that system quite a bit because it just was under capacity for what we were demanding of it. So basically the way we run the water is I have polytube out that I run basically off the corner of our house. So I'm just running it off the corner of our house and it runs out into the field and every other line I have, I've got other, you know, poly pipes. And then every 200 feet on that, on that line, we have just a, a little you know, spigot. So if I'm run, running, you know, hundred foot blocks and I'm moving every, you know, every other move, we have to move just a hose and fill our water trough. The benefit of having it on the attached to the side of our house is that I can usually hear the water running. We haven't put anything underground as far as our water system out in the pastures. And there are pros and cons to, to the water setup that we have. I would love to get it a little more efficient as far as getting water. Cause we, not only do we have you know, the cattle trough, but I also have waters that I have to get to every chicken flock. So I've got two different chicken flocks and I've got chicken tractors and I've got a, a thing of turkeys. And, you know, sometimes we've had pigs and we've got all this stuff and we're like, okay, I've got all these points. It gets to be a little bit complicated, but it works pretty good so far. It's working for you. And that's the important part. The thing that we often will run up against is if we lose power, which does happen quite a bit out here. I mean, I mean, I live in California and uh, wildfire country. And so there have been times in the heat of the summer, you know, in August where they've shut our power off for three days. And so what we do in the event of that is I pump out of the river into the kind of the 300 gallon, you know, water tote. I pull those around on a wagon with the oxen and I just kind of constantly rotating and making sure everybody is is watered eventually it would be lovely to have a gravity powered or backup generator or some kind of something that could run the water system if we do lose power oh that would be nice and i would imagine the um, watering during those days in august was a full-time job by itself so you mentioned earlier you've got your your beef cattle and you have a few dairy cows are these all in one herd that you're moving we've got 
three dairy cows, kind of Jersey and Jersey crosses. And they kind of are just fully integrated within our, our beef herd. We got kind of more traditional Dexters. They're not like the super mini Dexters, but yeah, they're, they are all integrated. I do keep my oxen separated out in a separate kind of herd. I pull them into the barn during the winter time. So it's kind of a way I kind of help destock because some of my oxen are fairly large and integrating the oxen with the cow herd is just not a good idea because they're much larger than a lot of our cows. And so they could cause damage and the bull doesn't like them. During the summertime, you know, when we've got the grass, I'm grazing the oxen all summer. In the wintertime, I bring them in and here in California, we're pretty lucky. It's a mild climate, mild coastal climate. So I get to graze grass 365 days a year. So I could graze the oxen during the wintertime, but I opt to pull them into the barn. They're larger, so it gets them off the pastures when it's wet. So they're not pugging up the pastures. They're not like physically impacting too hard. One of the other benefits is that it allows us to train them. And then we also collect all the manure. So the oxen manure is actually a really integral part of the fertility program for our, our vegetable operation. And so all winter long, we put them into stalls, bringing them in and out. They get to work every day. We're training them, but then we're also mucking those stalls and collecting all of the manure, composting that. And then that gets put back into the garden the following spring and summer. So I do keep them as their own unit, but then everybody else, it's just easier for us to just kind of keep one single herd. And I've got, I think in total, 35 to 40 animals, including a bull and all the yearlings and calves and, and everybody else. So it's still fairly small, but we process four to six animals a year. And then that is sold mainly at our, our farmers markets. In addition to some of it sold to our shareholders themselves. What animals are you processing? Are you keeping steers multiple seasons to process or using another class of animal? Yeah, so we keep our steers. I like to get them at least to two years. We also do rotate and, and pull out cull cows and other animals that we kind of just find not suitable for the program. You know, we're fairly closed loop. I keep a bull. I keep everybody kind of together and they seasonally breed and we kind of have a cycle that they work through and I rotate that bull through and then it's kind of grown from there and I don't buy in other animals or, or have anything like that. It's just kind of been building over the years and, and then we finally got to the point where we had, you know, enough beef excess that we were able to start selling that and since we do the farmer's markets for the vegetables anyways, it was an easy thing to kind of add in the direct marketed grass-fed beef since we're going to the farmer's market anyway. So it made sense for our particular operation. One question there you mentioned about your bull. Do you keep the bull with your herd year-round or are you pulling him off at any point? I actually had intentions of trying to pull him out so I could, could control the timing of the breeding. I've always had my calves kind of in the early spring, February through March, and then they breed back after a little while. We don't wean any of our calves. And so the, we just allow the, the moms to naturally wean and then breed back. And it's been a little bit hands-off mainly because I didn't have any facilities. I didn't have any way to pull that bull out, keep him. I actually tried to at one point. I was like, okay, let's try to pull this bull out. 
and put him with the oxen, but he just ran right back. And, you know, he just busted through the fences and was boom, back in with the cows. And it was like, that obviously isn't going to work. At least not on the size property that we have. You know, if I had a place where I could ship him off to and then bring him back, maybe, but it's been, it's been an interesting thing and I hope to refine it over the years. But oddly enough, keeping the bull and we've cycled the bull through, like we've replaced our bull, we've raised our own bulls and we haven't, you know, knock on wood, had that many issues. It's amazing how much they just kind of fit their breeding cycles and their nutritional needs into the cycle of the grass that we have here. And that's wonderful. That's always a question for small producers is what to do with your bull. It's kind of difficult to justify having a bull in its own pen. Anytime you have an animal by itself, it causes some issues. It's so farm dependent upon what you're doing, what facilities you have available. So you find a system that works for you. And we did, you know, because we originally started with just the dairy cows and we just kind of had, okay, let's, you know, we transitioned from the dairy goats into the dairy cows and, and we bought some, you know, bought a Jersey and we did AI. But interestingly, like we just found that was harder to manage trying to time the calf so that they didn't have a calf in August, which is probably our driest worst grass time of the year. And I can keep a good amount of our ground, not all of it, but I can keep a good amount of our pastures irrigated during the summer. That's one of the things that I do that allows us to graze, you know, year round. Cause really the way our climate goes, we would have basically summer dormancy, like everything gets too dry to graze during the summer. So even a lot of times ranches around here, you'll see people, they're feeding hay in August. I don't want to have the bulk of my herd having calves in August. For your dairy cows, how are you managing their calves and how often are you milking? The beef cows, they just raise their calves. They're great at it. But we have found that what we do with the dairy calves is we we separate them and then we just start milking and then we, we do bottles. So we bottle feed the calves. We've just found that we have healthier moms and healthier calves that way. The dairy calf, when it comes out, it's just not quite ready for the world. So they spend about three, three months. We keep little separate pens in the barn. So it's kind of like little calf hutches, but they're, they're fully inside the barn. And so they, they spend about three months in there and then, and then we take them out into a group and then we eventually integrate them into the, uh, the herd. I originally started and I used to milk twice a day. And then eventually once the production started wearing down, then switched to once a day. We're obviously not a commercial dairy. It's just for our, our use. And so I'm doing solely on grass. They get an organic alfalfa pellet when they're on the stand getting milked. And so I'm not going for high production. And so it's allowed me to just be like, okay, I milk in the morning and then, uh, and that's it. I do kind of a mobile milking. So that's one of the things that's kind of cool that we've set up is I basically have this mobile milking parlor. It's a little bit heavy. It's all made out of wood. So. I'd love to redesign at some point, but, um, we basically pull that behind the cattle herd and I use the oxen to pull that forward. So every day, you know, the cattle move, I just move my, my milk house forward with the oxen and then I go out and I milk and then I bring the milk back to be processed in the, in the farm kitchen. The milking is, is kind of a labor of love for me because 
I really love working with the cattle and it allows us to have, you know, milk for, for my family and for our crew. And I use the excess milk to raise calves that I train for the oxen. I work with a great local dairy here, um, the Alexander Eco Dairy. And uh, they're one of the larger organic dairy producers here in the California. They raise great calves. And so I get to go up there and choose 20 or so calves that they think are really good bull calves from, from there. They also pick some of their own bulls and whatnot. And so they pick out 20 or so. And then I, okay, I get out and I, I get to pick four to six calves out of that group. And then I usually raise those four calves. And then out of that group of four, I pick the best two. Then we bottle feed the calves and that kind of starts the process of training the oxen. And so by the time they get to be, you know, our full grown oxen team, they're kind of like the ones that have made the cut and gone through all of the testing. And, you know, they've got the, the physical and mental fortitude to do the physical work that it takes to do on the farm. So, Kevin, we kind of transitioned into it, but let's just go ahead and dive deeper into your oxen for the overgrazing section, where we take a deeper dive into one of your practices. And this is a very unique practice that you don't see too many farmers doing. You were just discussing where you get your bull calves to start the process and you narrow them down. What breeding are your oxen? They can be any breed. And I often like to talk about like, you know, the term ox is less of a category of, of animal and more of like a occupation, you know, just like I'm a farmer, they're an oxen. They do tend to be the dairy breeds mainly because of availability, but then also beef breeds also tend to put on more weight. They're designed to get bigger faster, at least most of the, you know, conventional beef breeds. So you see less beef bee breeds as, as oxen and they're more tend to be the, the dairy breeds. So one of the reasons I like working with the, the Alexander Eco Dairy is that they, they're breeding in kind of some older style breeds for their, their A2, A2 milk line. And so things like Fleck V and Normandy and, you know, my current main team is a Flex V breed. So it's kind of an older German multi-purpose breed, really great temperament, really good physical confirmation and hardiness on grass, which is something that we, we value. And, you know, a lot of times back in the day, you didn't have, you didn't have specialties. You just had, you know, had your cow and then eventually, you know, you could, you know, well, you maybe need to put a yoke on the cow and plow the fields. Like I said, oxen is more of a job title and, and the kind of the standard definition for oxen, at least in North America, is a mature castrated male bovine that's trained to work. So, you know, the age of about four to five, when, when cattle kind of reach actual maturity, they're considered working steers. And then after they've kind of matured into that, they kind of graduate into the term oxen, the European breeds that they're, they tend to be castrated temperament is one and then the other kind of lesser known reason for castrating is an ox will actually be larger than the bull of the same breed the influence of the testosterone increases growth to a point but then limits it so without you know influence of that testosterone they will continue to get bigger and they are less temperamental to you i've worked jersey holstein crosses I've worked milking shorthorns, 
I really like these Fleck Vs. Um, they're probably my, my best team yet. And then we're actually kind of excited. I have a set of bull calves, which would be the first ones that we actually are pulling off our own herd. They're just about a year old at this point. So they're actually still out with the main herd. This winter time, I'll bring them in and start working with them on their training. But they came from our dairy cows. So they would be Dexter Jersey cross, basically? Yeah, and I have some American milking Devon crossed into my dairy cows as well. We used to do AI and I bought some milking Devon semen and crossed some of that into my cattle. I'm the oddity out here on in California. You can go to the Northeast and they still do oxen poles and they have 4-H programs for working steers and, and that kind of thing. The steers that will be training for us are kind of a Jersey milking Devon Dexter mutt, basically. So they're not going to be as big as your Fleck V oxen. Yeah. And then even my Jersey Holstein cross is a fairly large ox. The Holstein being a really, you know, rather large boned, you know, animal. And Holsteins make great, great oxen because they are fairly easy to find and they're fairly, you know, mellow and they get big. What got you interested in having oxen? Dumb luck. I don't know how else to put it. So... When the internet commerce titans basically took out all of the bookstores locally. So we had a, a Barnes and Noble up in Eureka that shut down at one point. They had a clearance on books. I was like, oh, I like books. So I'm going to go up to check out the sale on books. And I go up there and one of the books that they happened to have there was by Drew Conroy. And it was Oxen, a Teamster's Manual. Like I said, I was a trained tractor farmer. You know, I had always entertained romantic notions of doing draft at some point, but I, I was, you know, just assumed it would be draft horses. So I came across Drew's book, read it. I was like, wow, I never even thought about oxen. So we went up and we got a couple of, you know, we got four dairy calves and, you know, drop calves. The funny thing is, is that at the time, those dairy calves were going for, you know, a drop calf was going for 20 to $30 at the time. We were started raising our pastured poultry and a, a whole broiler at that time was going for around 20 to $30. So I, I literally traded with a farmer four frozen chickens for four, you know, drop bull calves. And, you know, we raised those calves and carved a little mini training yoke and I put them on it. I still remember the, the day that I yoked up my first little cat set of calves and I, put a sled on there and I, I put a little rock on the sled and I asked them to step up. And I mean, by golly, they pulled the thing, you know, and it worked. It was a way to get into doing draft. I didn't have to spend thousands of dollars on a draft horse and thousands of dollars on pack and thousands of dollars on training and all of this stuff. I mean, I get to work with these little calves and if in the end it didn't work, well, we had well-behaved beef. You know, and so it was amazing the way it just kind of kept working. I realized how much I really enjoyed working with cattle at that point. And that's what kind of fueled the interest in doing the other aspects of the grass-based stuff. So I see, I was looking at your Instagram page. I see your contribution to the chicken wars on Instagram and TikTok. Leading your oxen, followed by chickens. The chicken coops, we get, get moved daily with the oxen. It's, it's how we integrate that aspect into our pastured operation. We move all of our, our mobile infrastructure using the oxen. It's been a really great way to integrate 
that aspect into our pastured production. Oxen are one of those things that if I ever just had lots of time, I would find it so interesting to do. I just I just don't have that kind of time right now. And my first step going towards stuff that I really don't need to do is have a couple milk cows. That's enough to keep you keep you super busy. I always tell people, if you don't like cows, you're not going to probably like oxen. And you have to like walking. Training oxen is actually fairly easy. And I'm not a horse person. I don't know how it is to train a horse. But I find, I find it fairly intuitive and easy. It just takes a long time. If I work with them for four years, they train me, I train them. And then hopefully, if I've done it for that long, I kind of know what I'm doing at that point. It's one of those things that kind of the old, the old saying is the, uh, you know, the ox is slow, but the earth is patient. Oh, very good, Kevin. Kevin, it's time for us to transition into our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. And our very first question, what's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? This was given to me by a friend, Holistic resource management. So this is the original Alan Savory. I think this was published in the 80s. And I, we actually have some of the more up-to-date versions of, of his books. And those are probably, you know, the, some of the most influential in me. There was also a book, I believe by a Canadian author, I'm off the top of my head, but it's called Grass-Fed Cattle. Holistic resource management and grass-fed cattle were probably the prime drivers in me learning uh, how to do the pasture, pasture-based farming that, that I do. Wonderful, wonderful. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? I want to say the oxen, but I think related to that, one of the things that we realized really early on is that wheels are complex and they break all the time. And so I use probably the most is a simple sled. You know, sometimes it's called a stone boat or a different things like that. And I make mine very crude, but it's a wooden sled that I use to hitch to my oxen and I pull stuff around the farm. I've got complex tools that I use with them in the garden and I've got wagons and carts and stuff that I can pull with the oxen. But the simple, basic stone boat sled probably the most basic and simplest tool. And I, I mean, I use it every single day. We're hitching to that. We're pulling something around. We're moving bales of hay. I'm moving rocks, buckets of milk, put a log on it and pull a log. I mean, there's so many things that I use that particular tool with the oxen themselves. Very good. And I did not have that on my bingo card. Unexpected answer, but a great answer. Yes. Our third question what do you wish you knew when you were getting started or what would you tell someone who's just now getting started? I think one of the things that we often tell a lot of the young folks that come through here is in the grass farming world to invest your money in livestock and not in machinery. I would say early on in our farming adventure, you know, I, I spent I think, and it wasn't a huge amount and I was buying used equipment and antique, but I spent about $30,000 on big old hunks of steel. Most all of that steel is either rusted or sold off. And I think if I had invested some of that, that original capital into the portable fencing and livestock and done that in that smart way, where you 
minimize your infrastructure investment and maximize the investment on things that will have return that come back. You know, I think that's one of the things to really think about, you know, when you're starting an operation. Now, do I regret buying my my first tractor? Not really, because that tractor did allow me to start the farm and get to the point where I where I am today. If I was to maybe do it over again, I might have invested more into portable infrastructure and and livestock instead of machinery. Could have set ourselves up better if we had spent more time getting our systems in place first and then investing in in the property. So you know, keeping things fairly simple in that way. It's kind of a, I, I know it's a common thing, but not doing the, the heavy metal disease, you know, where you get buy a bunch of iron that depreciates in value. Yeah. Very good advice. And Kevin, where can others find out more about you? I've got a pretty good presence on Instagram at shake fork oxen. My wife runs at shake fork community farm and I'm posting pretty regularly on that. We also have a Facebook presence which you can just search for Shakeport Community Farm. We've got a web page. You can find me at our local Humboldt County Farmer's Markets on Tuesdays in Fortuna and Saturdays in Arcata. Um, if you happen to be up here on the North Coast on Saturday in Arcata year-round, Tuesdays in Fortuna during the summertime. So the social media has been a really great way for us to, not everybody gets to come to the farm, but we get to bring the farm to them. And it's been a really great way to connect with our customers. And, and honestly, I've connected with people all over the world, which is really cool. Overall, being able to connect with people and talk about cows and oxen and grass and all of the things that I like to talk about has been a really benefit. So at Shake Fork Oxen is probably the best way to, to see what we do. Very good. We will have those links in our show notes. And Kevin, we want to thank you for coming on and sharing with us today. We've enjoyed it. This has been real fun. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts.
you can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.